I'm Maria, and welcome to the 3L podcast series, Limited Liability Leadership, Raising the Bar in Leading the Bar. Thanks for checking out our upcoming limited podcast series developed and produced by Class 8 of the W.N. Reese Smith Jr. Leadership Academy Program of the Florida Bar. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, This is Limited Liability Leadership Podcast, where we will discuss raising the bar and leading the Florida Bar. My name is BJ Ocular. I'm a partner with the law firm of Liebler, Gonzalez, and Portuando here in Miami, Florida. And I'm a member of the Florida Bar uh, Leadership Academy, Class 8. My name is Heather Samuels. I am a Florida Bar Board Certified Elder Law Attorney and the Managing Partner of Soulcloth Legal right here in beautiful Delray Beach. And I am also a member of the Florida Bar Leadership Academy, Class 8. Today, we'll be your host discussing retirement closing or selling a practice and getting a perspective on that. I am honored to introduce our guest speaker, Michael Karsh of Lorium Law. Michael Karsh has led our corporate and real estate practice groups since 2015. He focuses on helping companies and entrepreneurs grow their businesses from an idea through the entire life cycle. This includes mergers and acquisitions, equity and debt financing, joint ventures, financing and real estate transactions. Michael's initial training was at two of the country's most prominent law firms. Prior to forming his own firm in 2007, Michael was a partner with the law firm of Sachs, Sachs and Kaplan and also served as co-chair of the Business, Corporate and Finance Practice Group. He was also a partner with Broad and Cassell and its Miami and Boca Raton offices. Before locate, relocating to Florida in 1996, Michael was a member of Backner Talley, Polavoy and Mishner, LLP, a prominent mid-sized New York law firm, first as an associate and then as a partner. He was also an associate in the corporate finance groups of Skadden Arps, Slate, Mager and Florida in New York, and Vincent and Elkins in Houston, Texas, two of the country's leading law firms. Michael is the proud father of three sons, a doctor, a financial professional, and one son is graduating uh, UF in just two weeks. He's also the proud husband of Andrea for the last 35 years. Welcome, Michael. Great to be here, Heather and BJ. So let's begin, um, you know, when we talk about buying and selling law firms, we wonder first about value. What goes into valuing a law firm and how does debt and um, outstanding obligations on cases work into that? Well, buying a law firm is is kind of interesting and I think it's different than a lot of other businesses. Maybe it's similar to some medical practices and a lot of it depends on what the firm's practice is, how big the firm is, and whether the buyer believes that the the revenue flow that the firms had in the past will continue in the future. So, for example, there's probably a big difference between you know larger firms and smaller firms. So, if the lawyer lawyer A is a solo practitioner, he's 73 years old, and you know he's you know handled you know a certain type of case over the years. You know, the buyer is going to have a very legitimate question about if the practice is so based on lawyer A's personality, he goes to the rotary, the chamber, you know, his, you know, church or synagogue, and everybody knows him from there about if he retires, whether the business will still come in or it's so personal to the that person that that if he's no longer there, that the the new attorney there 
would get keep the same business flow. So that's the, the most important question I think somebody will ask when they go to look at value a firm. If a firm is you know bigger, let's say it's five lawyers, you know that might be a different story um, because you know you would presume that the people are going to still be there. There be some continuity, and even if the people think that they're going to retire in a couple of years, having a continuity would would keep that business. For example, um, we advised a firm. Uh, last year that had uh, was a PI firm in Broward County and there were four partners and the youngest partner tragically got sick and died very unexpectedly and the other three partners were in their late 60s early 70s and really wanted to wind down and retire and they went looking for another firm uh, to acquire them and you know, they had some name recognition, but they weren't one of the TV advertising firms. So when they did the transaction, they didn't really get a purchase price on the transaction. Instead, what they got was they transferred all their cases over to the new firm. Two of the three went to work at the firm and wanted to work on these cases. And they literally went through all maybe the 40 or 50 cases and, and cut a deal on each case on how much money they would receive if the, the cases were successful. And a lot of it depends on the status of the case, how far along it was, how active the lawyers wanted to be. But they, they came up with a, a way to measure and a quantitative way to, to, to value what they were transferring over. You know, what are going back, a long way of saying it's unlikely that if, when you sell your firm, somebody's going to write you a big check and you're going to walk away. It's going to be some type of valuation of the existing business and giving you a piece of that business as it continues. It could be as simple as having, you know, a 25% referral fee. Essentially you become of counsel to the firm, get a referral fee for your existing clients to come in. Maybe it applies to the existing cases Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it applies to future cases from the same clients. It really depends on what kind of practice you're doing. If you're doing something where your your practice is a lot of residential real estate, you don't necessarily have the same clients over and over again. So um, somebody buys a house today, they you close for you write a title policy, collect your fee. That person not necessarily coming back tomorrow because they're not going to sell another house next week. Um, if it's some type of you know insurance defense practice where you're getting a lot of cases from an insurance company, that's those are the kind of things that probably have more value to the retiring attorney. And you know, yes, you know, debt certainly plays into that. You know, sometimes uh, the buyer will want the seller to to keep the debt. Uh, sometimes the debt will be assumed and it will get paid off. You know, before you get distributions of your share. Of profits, it, it gets negotiated, and different kind of firms have different kind of debt. Leases are a good example too. If you have a lease with five years left on your space, and the acquiring firm wants you to move into their space, somebody's got to figure out what's going to happen with the lease. Whether you can sublet it, which is maybe hard these days, or someone's just going to have to try to pay it off, or maybe you keep the same space for a while just as part of the transition. So that it looks like there's some continuity and you try to keep more of the value. So, Michael, uh, let's, let's unpack some of this. It seems like a, a lot 
uh, goes into this type of process when you decide to go down this path. Do you recommend getting someone involved uh, to, to help you with this process? And, and at what point do you want to bring in uh, somebody if you're looking to merge or to purchase a practice? Well, ideally, and it's the same on any type of transaction, not just in a law firm, is that you want to have a business attorney and an accountant before you want to sell. When you start thinking you want to sell, that's the time to start consulting with somebody because a lot of times there are structural issues in your business and your law practice that you need to try to fix before you can go sell. And maybe it's getting fixing up your lease. Maybe it's with bank accounts. Maybe it's having of counsel agreements with uh, you know various attorneys. And we tell people when they're you know when they you know in a business when they're thinking of selling the business that you know you really want to do some type of succession planning. And that a lot of times starts um, way before the sale because if somebody walks into me our office and says I just signed a letter of intent to sell my business, whatever kind of business it is it's a lot of times too late to fix things. There might be adverse tax consequences. There may just be things that are due diligence that if you had fixed it, you may have gotten higher value for your company just because when they came in and looked at your business, they looked like a mess, for example. You had no corporate records. Uh, you commingled bank accounts, all types of things that are, that are kind of a mess that you want to have cleaned up. So even if it's not like a major amount of work, it's, it's very wise to have a consultation with a business attorney well before you're ready to actually pull the trigger itself. And it might be just you talk to me for an hour every six months, and it's not a lot of work, just enough that what's going on, here's an idea, here's my problem, how do I deal with it? So that when the real deal comes, everything's lined up and ready to go. So, so you're saying from the seller side, the, the legwork really starts way in advance on the seller side to, to put yourself in a position to be able to go through the transaction. Whereas perhaps, how about on the buyer side? Is, is, there, is there a lot of uh, legwork that needs to be done before you start looking on a, on a buyer side? No, not really. That, that's more like we would more get involved there when a, a seller has identified, I'm sorry, when a buyer's identified you know, certain targets and said, we're looking to acquire these three practices. What do you think? Can you help us do some due diligence on these practices and see if you see things that look like problems here that maybe we're not seeing because we're litigators and we want somebody to look at it from a business lawyer point of view and look at these agreements and see what you think and how they do things and, and see if you think it looks like a problem there. Because sometimes you may say on the outside, you have three different firms that look the same from the outside. But when you go, you know, peel black the layers, there's very different things underneath, you know, besides just, you know, financials. So let's talk about, so we talked about from the seller's perspective, um, and let's talk a little bit more about, you know, what the, how the buyer looks at things. Um, it seems that a buyer, of course, would want some sort of transparency. Let's talk about how that works, you know, financially, because, you know, we talked about negotiating how to deal with debts, how to deal with leases, how to deal with, you know, outstanding obligations. When should the buyer look for a financial disclosure and should they have their own accountant and, and lawyer? Absolutely. And from an accounting point of view, a lot of, a lot of lawyers do things kind of generally the same, but there's a lot of different ways 
to account for various items. And if you've, you know, uh, if you talk to different law firms at different times, maybe to go work there, you would see that pretty much every firm in America has a different compensation system. And you want to look at how they, you know, account for various things. Some firms have open compensation, some closed compensation, meaning like at my firm, we have financials where every partner sees where every penny goes and everybody knows what everybody else makes. But if you go to a lot of larger firms, there's only a very limited number of people in a closed system that know how much you make. And that's kind of a secret information. I was at a firm like that where nobody knew what anybody else made except for the managing partner. And so, you know, sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. So that's one thing you want to come in and look at the accounting system. Plus, Different firms, when they do, they allocate overhead differently to you. And some firms say that we're going to charge you $100,000 a year for your secretary. And we're going to charge you for this and charge you for that. And then you get a percentage over it. So so you have to make sure that the compensation systems meshed. And, and we just completed a firm merger just a month and a half ago. And you know, one of the steps we went through is look at it is that they had a very different system of accounting and how they did things. But at the end of the day, their profit margin was very similar to our profit margin. So then we were able to combine the systems. We changed some accounting things, but at the end of the day, they, they would have made the same amount of money, the old, the old partners with the new partners. And so we were able to relatively easily mesh the systems together. Sometimes other firms don't do that because just of different ways of doing compensation, whether it's an eat what you kill or some firms just share everything equally among the partners. It just depends on the system. And that, that's a very important thing. And that actually goes a lot to culture. And one of the things that I know we didn't really talk about before is that, you know, when on, a, on an acquisition, as you're a buyer or a seller, looking at the other firm's culture is very important whether it's places that you consider a sweatshop or people are working all the time, whether it's, you know, they have a different work-life balance, you know, and what's important to the people there. So that that's a very important consideration when you consider what you're wanting to do with as a buyer or seller, that where the, where the culture's best. And some of the, the big mergers that got a lot of press, like the big one in New York a couple of years ago with Dewey Ballantyne and LaBeouf, where it blew up, you know, they had very, you know, different cultures, different compensation systems. And and when they just thought if we put everything together, it'll work. And it didn't work when you do that because the cultures were so different and the personalities that it, it caused a huge amount of problems had a big blow up and a lot of people lost a lot of money and jobs off of it. Seems like something to avoid. Yeah. So that, that was very important for us, you know, to look at the culture that we, because we knew that the other people you know, we'd work together, we were friends with them, and it was very important And we tried to combine that we wouldn't, that we'd all like to be working with each other together in the future. And that goes beyond dollars and cents, too. Let me ask you about the question on, on culture. How do you really get a view of, of a firm's culture um, beyond that of the, the named partners on the door? I mean, do, do you try to interview uh, associates or, or employees? Or how do you, you know, you do go out into the other lawyers and ask their opinions. How do, how do you get that that sense of the culture to see if it works? You try to do everything as much as possible without turning people away and scaring people. 
Look, our firm was 14 before, and the firm we merged with was, was seven. And they had two partners, so and we knew them, so that part was very easy. But we spent a lot of time with the two partners, with Adam and Joey, talking about the other people in their firm and how they do things and how they look at it and what's important, not important to it. So we spent a couple months doing this, you know, meeting a couple times a week, you know, Zoom, you know, this is all during the pandemic, you know, and some in person even. We had people come to the office and sit, you know, 10 feet away with masks on and just try to talk to them, not necessarily interview them, but get to, to get to know them and just to see what they're like, how they think, how they would fit. You know, do you like them? Do you not like them? You know, what are their, their strengths and, and, and things? I think the bigger the firm you get, the harder it is to do that. You know, if you're doing with, I did another one merger a couple of months ago with somebody that, you know, Heather might know from our, you know, different Friday morning breakfast, lunches and stuff like that meetings. And it was, you know, two lawyers into two lawyers together. And it's a very different fit because they already knew each other ahead of time really well. And they just all of a sudden, kind of like we did, woke up and said, how come we're not practicing together? We should just be in the same office. We like each other. We do things the same way. And, and let's figure out how to do a deal. And even with them liking each other, it still took them a while to cut the economic deal. And they started having me drafting documents doing one deal. And after they read them, they said, you know, we thought about it. We want to do a totally different deal. So just throw it out and start over again. And now, you know, four months later, they're thrilled on how it worked out. But you have to, you know, you know, figure out those things. And that's part of the due diligence process. And when you start negotiating the terms, and this one, you know, was the one where the person wanted whether she was getting, you know, were they going to, he's going to, the buyer is going to buy the receivables or not buy receivables. And is, you know, the incoming lawyer going to get a guaranteed salary or just percentage draws? And they kind of, you know, figure these things out. And that gets really important, just as a lot of sit down and talking. And we, and when we, our firm looked to be acquired by a firm from Chicago last two years ago. And we realized the cultures were never going to work right. We liked the people a lot. But we didn't like how what their firm culture was. And we went to see them in their offices. We talked to a lot of the people. We got on calls with them. We even went to their firm retreat to meet a lot of people. And it just, at the end of the day, we just said, it's not going to work for us. We just don't want to be a satellite with a big group of people. It just, the culture wasn't work. We're, we, we didn't think we'd make any more money doing it. It just didn't make sense to put all that bureaucracy on that whole thing. I know you two are both in smaller firms that so you don't understand necessarily understand about bureaucracy. But when you start dealing with having to report to people, this is an important thing in an acquisition. Do you want to report to somebody who's a thousand miles away who you're not seeing? You can't walk into their office every day to ask them a question. And when the person's down the hall and you can talk to them all, it makes a, a, a big difference on you know the culture and how things work. Certainly, I wanted to circle back on something you mentioned, and I think it kind of segues well with what we're talking about now is, is, is a name of a firm. Um, I know it's just one decision, but we all spend a lot of time probably trying to figure out what is the best name. Do I keep the old name? Is there goodwill that goes with the old name? Uh, or, or do we go a, a brand new name? Give us a sense of what you've seen uh, when, when you've got a merger of a firms and, and a buyout of a, a, an older firm. What do you do with the name? It's actually it's actually a really good question, and there's there's no I think hard and fast answer. 
it really depends, I think, in, in that particular community where, you know, the firm is, is how much, how much name recognition the firm would have. And if you change the name is one, what you would change it to. And two, what would you lose when you change the name? What some firms do when they combine is they kind of get a hyphenated name for a while. And like when Broad and Cassell was merged, you know, that had a lot, a lot of name recognition in the state of Florida, Broad and Cassell. And when they merged with Nelson Mullins, was out of North Carolina, it was a much bigger firm. You know, they were Nelson Mullins, Broad and Cassell for the first year. And then slowly they dropping the Broad and Cassell part, just Nelson Mullins. If you're a smaller firm or if you're like, again, a PI firm that's advertising on TV, on the back of the buses and things like that, the name probably has a fair amount of value to it. It depends on what your name is, too, if, you're, if, if your name has value. Um, when we did our merger recently, my firm, Rice Pugach, had a fair amount of you know, name recognition in South Florida in the bankruptcy world. But it didn't have it in other facets. And the firm does more than just bankruptcy work. And Marshall Grant had, you know, some good name recognition in, in Boca Raton, but not necessarily other parts of the state. And and we decided that, first of all, we had five names and they had two names a name. We weren't going to go with a seven, a seven names. We wanted to go something shorter. And we had to try to figure out if we could have one name that everybody liked, but also get domain names for that, for, for, the, for websites and emails. So... You know, a lot of firm just people called us Rice, but we didn't want to be known as Rice, and you could never get a domain name with the word Rice in it. They're all taken. So we spent a lot of time agreeing that we should get a different name that's something that's kind of unique where we could get the domain names for it and that we could try to rebrand ourselves. And we wanted to try to rebrand ourselves, you know, from being not just bankruptcy, which is people know us for, but other types of practice areas like corporate and real estate because we had good people doing good work, but it didn't have the name recognition. So it gave us a chance to change the name of the firm and go out and start contacting the world with a new message about, you know, we have these good people. We're trying to change our perspective on how we do things and, and gave us a good reason coming out of the pandemic, hopefully coming out of the pandemic soon to try to, you know, get in touch in front of people's faces again with this story and that we, we need to carefully develop the story of, of what we were trying to do. And we think it'll work fine. You know, time will tell. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, with certain limited areas, especially that you guys probably agree in, a, you know, smaller firms, it's really more about the lawyer than the law firm. Like people don't come to you because of the name of the law firm. People come to you because somebody's referred you to you. Somebody else has liked you. Another lawyer thinks you're really good. A client thinks you're really good, and it's more word of mouth, and it's more particular to the lawyer, the lawyer than the name of the law firm. And people may contact me if I talk to me in six months. Did you move firms? Because I have a different address on my emails now um, in Boca instead of Fort Lauderdale because I moved up to here. They said no, we combined firm. We're changing our branding. It's still me doing the same stuff and even better service because we have more people here to help you. So that's the most important thing, I think, is is how you brand it with the name change, not necessarily what the name is. And, yeah, there, there are definitely names in South Florida that I think are very valuable for, you know, some law firms. But I would say 
the vast majority of them don't have that much, you know, value there. I mean, Heather's firm might have more because it's not somebody's name. But, you know, Solkoff has a lot of name recognition in the elder law world. But if you were just like elder law firm or something like that with a, some type of, you know, variation of elder law, that might have more value than having somebody's last name. Yeah, it's it's so it's so interesting how um, dependent it is upon you know the the person and what they've done. You know, we're fortunate enough. You know, my partner and my partner's dad wrote you know write the West book. How you know how much name recognition you get? Your name is on a book, but it's interesting how you show the differences between you know a, a merger versus versus a purchase versus an internal purchase and and an external purchase and how all that works. I'd like to delve into that a little bit more. Um, in terms of how it works when you're selling to an insider? Because we've talked about mergers, we've talked about purchase from outside. What's the difference when you're selling to somebody from inside the firm? I'd like to give you the opportunity to expand upon that some more. I've seen that some also, not as much, but I think I think what happens there, just back to the name right away, because that's the first one, is that you'll see an announcement that firm AB is now noticed from A, B, and C. And that signifies that C has either been a an associate's elevated to partner or that person is becoming uh, taking a much more elevated role, maybe running the firm, but they, they do see still have the value of names A and B. So they want to they want to keep those names on there. And the what the ones I've seen again there C is not really writing a check at closing. C is instead saying to A, B, especially if they're pulling back, is that I'm going to pay you a percentage of the collections from your clients for some period of time. And if you work on them, let's just make up numbers that I'm going to pay you 25% of the work that comes in, the the revenues from your clients as of a certain day. Here's your list of 30 clients, and I'm going to pay you a percent of them. And... If you bill any time on that, I'll pay you a different percentage for the, the billing on it. And that allows the, the selling person to ease out as fast or slow as they want. Sometimes they walk out the next day, and sometimes they want to hang around a little bit. They want to have a, a place to go to work. They may only work five hours a week or, or not at all, but they want to you know kind of stay involved. That's just the personalities. But because if you're the buyer – you don't again. You don't know what business is going to stay, so you're you're concerned about buying out the business. The one thing that might get purchased, and that necessarily doesn't have that much value, you might actually purchase the hard assets of the firm. Meaning, if there's an office lease, you may you know, take over the lease. You might buy all the equipment in the office, the things that are hard assets that have a value, but they generally don't aren't worth that much. That if you go to if you wanted to go liquidate your office and you have, you know, 10 desks and, and five computers, they're not worth very much to liquidate. They've probably been depreciated for tax purposes. If you had to call somebody to go buy the desk, they're going to pay like 200 bucks a desk. And the computers are basically obsolete the day after you buy them. So nobody wants to buy used computers. So the hard assets don't have very much value. But that's something that usually does get bought out. You know, maybe, maybe there is some value to the goodwill. And it's, you know, you can get some payment for the goodwill. It, it really depends. The, the ones I've seen, it hasn't been that much. It's been uh, the tens of thousands of dollars, not like hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to it. It's just not something that 
that in the legal world at least has that that much of a value again because of the same the same issues before with the third party one is just it, it doesn't you don't know what the business is going to be tomorrow if so and so walks away from the firm. So I have a follow up question to that, Michael. Um, we've talked about insiders and and outsiders. If the firm is, I guess, selling to the insider. So if A and B are trying to wind down and C is really the one taking over, are A, B and C using the same attorney and CPA? Are they using different attorneys and CPAs? How does that normally work in kind of a small firm deal like A, B and C? It depends. I mean, sometimes, ideally, you'd have separate attorneys and accountants, not as an accountant, because accountant, you're not the books are what they are. So I, I could see the less of a conflict on the accounting side. From the lawyer side, I would say, yes, you'd want to have some independent counsel. Now, some people will say they'll hire somebody and says, you're like the firm's lawyer. You're not representing either A or B. You're just representing the firm interest and you're acting almost like a mediator and sitting in the room and hearing what everybody says and having them to come to a consensus and then become a draft person of the document. It, it, it really depends on how controversial the items are or contentious, I guess is a better word, of the discussions. And, you know, sometimes you're just called in to be a scribe, more or less, and they say, well, here's what we've agreed to do. We've agreed to pay this percent of these deals, write it up in agreement, and let us all look at it. And I guess because lawyers are somewhat sophisticated, maybe not necessarily in all the business things, but at least they know enough that they can look at a document if you do it relatively simply enough, and they don't need to have... You know, you don't need to have three set of lawyers involved in a, in a transaction like that. You could just do it, you know, with one. And particularly if people get along really well, it makes it a lot easier to do it. It's not a contentious buyout. It's just like kind of passing the mantle on to the to the heirs. That makes sense. Michael, you mentioned um, accounting. So what about, what about a firm's trust account? How do we transition that or transfer that to a new firm? What actually has to happen is that I believe you have to give, you know, notice to all the clients who have money in trust. And the ideal way would be to ask them to consent to transfer the money over to the new firm's trust account. We're going through that now, actually. And it was a real mess with our first month of billings where their people had retainers on how to integrate or integrating the billing systems in of how to do it. And a couple of bills went out where it didn't show like the retainer. In the, on the statement, and they, people call and complain that what's going on, and we fixed it very quickly. But ideally, you'd want to not just turn over the trust account. You'd want to get each person's consent to transfer the money over. And ideally, you'd probably want to get them to sign a new retainer letter with the new firm if it's really a, you know, a, a separate independent firm as opposed to a combination. And, and we've set ours up where we've kind of had two sub-firms within the big firm so we can kind of keep the you know, the existing retainer agreements in place and it, it made it a little bit easier transaction-wise. So there's a couple kind of, I don't call them tricks, but, you know, corporate structuring issues that help you get around that. And eventually the money runs out in trust because you're hopefully not supposed to keep it too long in a trust account. So you can, you know, if it takes a couple months for it to run out so we kind of do things, you can do that. Just keep the separate trust accounts until the funds are all used or, or transferred. But it is something the bar is very concerned with looking at. So it does pay to look at it, you know, closely. And if you need to, you know, consult with the bar counsel because they're they're really helpful in these 
types of issues. Uh, I was going to say, I think the Florida Bar has uh, has counsel that can assist. Do you, do you routinely reach out to them in, in these kind of situations? If we think we need to, occasionally, I would say occasionally, because usually people have done enough of these. We, we know what works and doesn't work. And we can, you know, we know what the bar will say and uh, we'll do it. Once in a while, something come up, it's, it's, it's usually at some type of one or two particular clients and not necessarily overall things. It just, there's a particular issue with a particular client with something and, and it's the middle of a case with a settlement or something like that, that, that makes it a little more complicated. And then you want to talk to the bar. Usually, usually if the client can consent to anything that, that usually, if you go to the client and get their consent, usually the bar is okay with pretty much everything you want to do with transferring the trust accounts. Yeah. I mean, th- that's the nice thing about the bar. Um, for the most part, as long as you don't do anything wrong, they're, they're really on your side because you're on the client side too. So um, you know, last question, I just kind of want to, you know, kind of give you the opportunity to discuss anything we missed because it seems like, you know, um, somebody that is going to sell their practice is, you know, really, really, really must plan to do this, find a buyer, whether it's internally, externally, look at their culture, negotiate the transaction. But what happens if there is a sudden uh, death or or disability? You you mentioned that at the beginning, and we really haven't had an opportunity to elaborate on that sort of planning. And so I I wanted to, you know, kind of close by allowing you to give your advice to, um, you know, these, the solo and small firms, even that have, um, you know, this, this vulnerability that we all have, how would you advise them to plan? Solo is a little different than if other partners. And it's something when I learned, because I, I went solo for a while about uh, 14 years ago. And when you, something I was registering at the bar and they asked who my inventory, inventory attorney was. And I had absolutely no idea what they were talking about. And I called a couple of their solo friends and said, you need to have somebody listed on the Florida bar with your registration if you're a solo about if something happens to you that some that person can step in and essentially supervise the transferring or winding down of your your practice essentially taking inventory of your clients so i went and agreed to have a friend do that so that's something you're actually required by the bar rules to do if you're a solo so to have somebody there you know if you're a firm it's always good to have contingency planning and, and knowing what, and it's, I think just from a practical matter, you need to know what your partners are doing and keep in touch with them. Even if it's been, which is harder now that we're not all in one place these days if we're working remotely, that if something happens to somebody, that so you can jump in and, and pick up the ball and figure out what to do with it. And, you know, just like if somebody's going on vacation for a couple of weeks out of the country, you know, they always write a memo to somebody saying, Here's my my cases. Look at my files, and um, you know, here's what to do if something happens on these files. And that's the kind of planning I think you need to deal with if some one of these tragedies may happen. You know, especially if it's sudden. And this other firm was able to jump in because they were four guys that spent a lot of time together. But if it's not, it's it could be hard if you don't know whatever people are doing. What about any insurance policies or buy-sell agreements that perhaps these small firms should have in place? That's interesting. You you probably could. It's probably a good idea for a smaller firm to have what's essentially, if you can get it, key man life insurance. And 
let's say you get a million dollars of, of life insurance and depending on how you set it up, a couple of things can happen. I know it's, it's, uh, I'm not, I'm not a trusted estates planning guy, but is that, but I've seen it that if you have a million dollars of insurance, for example, that it might all go to the firm if something happens to die and the firm pays the premium and the money goes to the firm. If something happens, uh, it might be that it's split where a portion of it goes to the estate and, a portion of it goes to the firm to try to, you know, fill the hole in, in the revenue of the firm. But it's almost, then it's like a benefit to the person, you know, to the spouse and it probably gets taxed to them. So it's, it, that, there's a whole lot of tax implications to that, but it certainly helps just like any other business that if, if somebody's so important and that something happens to them, that the firm would be materially adversely impacted, it probably does make sense to see if you can get that kind of insurance. Might be expensive. You may not. You might decide it's too expensive to do. Depends on the health of the people, the age, how much you know insurance you want. My firm, if you know any one person died all of a sudden, you know it would hurt a little bit, but it wouldn't you know shut the firm down because we're you know we're we're eight partners. But if it's a two partner firm, and depending on which one it is, that could be a huge problem for the firm, and you have to figure out how to replace the person. And I actually was working on a, on a shareholder agreement for a two-partner PI firm, and we're having all these discussions. And the issue is we come up with a list of issues and discuss them, and the guys are like best friends too, and they say, we'll talk about it and get back with you. Well, this has been going on for a year, and they're trying to figure out how to best handle that, and they're young enough and healthy enough to get good insurance, and who's the money going to go to if something happens? And one guy says, well, I, if you leave, I have to pick up twice as many cases now. I can't handle them. I have to hire somebody. So I'm going to have money to pay to hire somebody else to to handle the caseload. So it's an interesting problem, and it really depends on the firm and the dynamics of the insurance market at the time. Oh, lots to think about, for sure. Lots to think about. Definitely. And, uh, Michael, I I think that's all the time we have today, and uh, I truly appreciate uh, you spending the time with us, and I'm, I think we both find this very informative and definitely a pleasure to get get to learn more about uh, this process. And I can speak, I, I don't want to speak for myself, uh, for Heather, but I, I do want to say if, if this ever comes up, I know who I'll be calling for assistance and guidance through this. Uh, seems like a land landfill, landmine of, of navigation that, that's needed. So on behalf of the Leadership Academy Class A, let me thank you again for taking time with us. That will wrap up our discussion on retirement closing or selling a practice. Uh, thanks for joining us today on the Limited Liability Leadership Podcast. Don't forget to check out other episodes to learn more about raising the bar and leading the bar. Thank you again, Michael. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it.